Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Greetings and welcome to the Might is Right Network at mightisright.net. At Might is Right Network, there is streaming 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. The Might is Right Network at mightisright.net. Be there. Calling all the clans together, calling all the clans together, brothers come a run. Calling south and north together, calling west and east together, calling all the clans together, brother come run. Can't afford to be a bit of sleeping. Can't you see the reaper reaping? Brothers come a run. Never mind the shells are flying. Never mind the dead and dying. Can't you hear the piper piping? Brother come a run. Come a running fast. Come a running hard. Running for all you worth. Come a running through the gates of hell itself and let the devil take the hindmost. We're gonna be calling all the clan together. Calling all the clan together. Calling all the clan together. Brothers come running. God created the state of Israel. God defends the state of Israel. The Bible says, he that keepeth Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. The word keepeth is a military term meaning to defend. God is saying to every nation on the face of the earth, he that touches Israel touches the apple of my eye. God has declared in Genesis 12:3, I will bless those that bless you, Abraham, and your seed, that would be the Jewish people, and I will curse those who curse you. I am a student of world history, and you can wrap up world history in 25 words or less. And here it is. The nations that blessed Israel prospered, and the nations that cursed Israel were destroyed by the hand of God. Where is the Egyptian empire? 
Where are the Egyptians that tormented the Jewish people by drowning their sons in the Nile River and by forcing them to build bricks without straw? They were wiped out. God turned Pharaoh to fish food in the Red Sea in a very short period of time. Where's the Grecian Empire? It's gone. Where's the Babylonian Empire? It's gone. Where's the Ottoman Empire? It's gone. Where's the British Empire that used to stretch all over the earth? India, Canada, America, Africa. Now it's reduced to one tiny island because since Edward I, they have been and remain an anti-Semitic nation. Where is those goose-stepping Nazis that were going to build a kingdom that would last a thousand years? They're buried in the boneyard of human history, resented and hated by the world. Ladies and gentlemen, God could care less about our relationship with other nations, but he's watching what America does as it responds to Israel. If America turns its back on Israel, God will turn its back on America, and that's a fact. It's proven by history. Therefore, we should be very concerned with what's happening in the White House as we respond to Prime Minister Netanyahu. Hello again, and welcome to the Valkyrie Underground with me, your host, Urban Jungle Girl. Thank you so much for joining me on the Might is Right Network at MightIsRight.net. Today is Moon Day, March the 2nd. And between the live podcast, Midas Right streams 24 hours a day, some of the best white racialist material and music out there. Moonday is Valkyrie Underground with me. Tuesday is Berserker Bastion with Ruthless Rob. Thursday is the Midas Right Power Hour with Bill Rise. And sometimes Sunday is Open Lines. If you wish to chat during the show, please use the chat room at MidasRight.net as we will close the uh, chat on TalkShoe, and that's a network policy. So, well, tonight I'm going to be doing a show on Judeo-Christian hoax. And I was going to do something else, but given the fact that King Kike is here and uh, Iran is back on the table and some other things are happening... I kind of changed my uh, my plans at the last minute, and so yeah, where are those where are those empires? The Egyptian Empire and the Grecian Empire and the Babylonian, Ottoman, and British empires. And what happened to those Nazis? Well, <laughs> I think you can look to the Kikes for answers to that uh, that question uh, in every single case. So. I'm going to start by reading something that is a bit old, but it became new again. And I've had it on my desk for a while. It's an article that was written in 2012, and it's titled, Millions of Evangelical Christians Want to Start White War III. I said that, to speed the second coming. Millions of Evangelical Christians Want to Start World War III to Speed the Second Coming. Millions of Americans believe that Christ will not come again until Israel wipes out its competition and there is widespread war in the Middle East. Some of these folks want to start a huge fire of war and death and destruction so that Jesus comes quickly. According to French President Chirac, Bush told him that the Iraq war was needed to bring on the apocalypse. 
in Genesis and Ezekiel, Gog and Magog are forces of the apocalypse who are prophesied to come out of the north and destroy Israel unless stopped. The book of Revelation took up the Old Testament prophecy, quote, And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth. Gog and Magog, them together to battle and fire, came down from God out of heaven and devoured them, end quote. Bush believed that time had now come for that battle, telling Chirac, quote, This confrontation is willed by God, who wants to use this conflict to erase his people's enemies before a new age begins, end quote. There can be little doubt now that President Bush's reason for launching the war in Iraq was, for him, fundamentally religious. He was driven by his belief that the attack on Saddam's Iraq was the fulfillment of a biblical prophecy in which he had been chosen to serve as the instrument of the Lord. And British Prime Minister Tony Blair, longtime mentor, advisor, and confidant, said, quote, Tony's Christian faith is part of him, down to his cotton socks. He believed strongly that intervention in Kosovo, Sierra Leone, Iraq, too, was all part of the Christian battle. Good should triumph over evil, making lives better, end quote. Mr. Burton, who was often described as Mr. Blair's mentor, says that his religion gave him a, quote, total belief in what's right and what's wrong, end quote leading him to see the so-called war on terror as a moral cause. Anti-war campaigners criticized remarks Mr. Blair made in 2006, suggesting that the decision to go to war in Iraq would ultimately be judged by God. Bill Moyers reports that the organization Christian United for Israel, led by highly influential pastor John C. Hagee, is a universal call to all Christians to help factions in Israel fund the Jewish settlements, throw out all the Palestinians, and lobby for a preemptive invasion of Iran, all to bring Russia into a war against us, causing White War III, followed by Armageddon, the Second Coming, and the Rapture. This all revolves around what is called dispensationalism, so popular is dispensationalism that Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series has sold 65 million copies. Dispensationalists include the following mega-pastors and their churches. Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, Billy Graham. They are supported by politicians such as Newt Gingrich, Joe Lieberman, John McCain, Texas Senator John Croyne, former House Minority Whip Roy Blunt, former House Majority Leader Tim DeLay, and others. In a recent time CNN poll, more than one-third of Americans said that since the terrorist attacks of 9-11, they have been thinking more about how current events might be leading to the end of the world. While only 36% of all Americans believe that the Bible is God's Word and should be taken literally, 59% say they believe that events predicted in the book of Revelation will come to pass. Almost one out of four Americans believes that 9-11 was predicted in the Bible, and nearly one in five believes that he or she will live long enough to see the end of the world. 
Over one-third of those Americans who support Israel report that they do so because they believe the Bible teaches that the Jews must possess their own country in the Holy Land before Jesus can return. Millions of Americans believe that the Bible predicts the future and that we are living in the last days. Their beliefs are rooted in dispensationalism, a particular way of understanding the Bible's prophetic passage, especially those in Daniel and Ezekiel in the Old Testament and the book of Revelation in the New Testament. They make up about one-third of America's 40 or 50 million evangelical Christians and believe that the nation of Israel will play a central role in the unfolding of end-time events. In the last part of the 20th century, dispensationalist evangelists become Israel's best friends, an alliance that has made a serious geopolitical difference. Starting in the 1970s, dispensationalists broke into the popular culture with runaway bestsellers and well-networked political campaigns to promote the interests of Israel. Since the mid-1990s, tens of millions of people who have never seen a prophetic chart or listened to a sermon on the second coming have read one or more novels in the Left Behind series, which has become the most effective disseminator of dispensationalist ideas ever. During the early 1980s, the Israeli Ministry of Tourism recruited evangelical religious leaders for free, quote, familiarization tours, end quote. In time, hundreds of evangelical pastors got free trips to the Holy Land. The purpose of such promotional tours was to enable people of even limited influence to experience Israel for themselves and be shown how they might bring their own tour group to Israel. The Ministry of Tourism was interested in more than tourist dollars, here was a way of building a solid core of non-Jewish supporters for Israel in the United States by bringing large numbers of evangelicals to hear and see Israel's story for themselves. The strategy caught on. Shortly after the Six-Day War, elements within the Israeli government saw the potential power of the evangelical subculture and began to mobilize it as a base of support that could influence American foreign policy. The Israeli government sent Yona Malaki of its Department of Religious Affairs to the United States to study American fundamentalism and its potential as an ally of Israel. Malaki was warmly received by fundamentalists and was able to influence some of them to issue strong pro-Israeli manifestos. By the mid-1980s, there was a discernible shift in the Israeli political strategy. The American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, APAC, the Jewish state's major lobbying group in Washington, D.C., started realigning itself with the American political right wing, including Christian conservatives. Israel's timing was perfect. It began working seriously with American dispensationalists at the precise moment that American fundamentalists and evangelicals were discovering their political voice. Probably the largest pro-Israel organization of its kind is the National Unity Coalition for Israel, which was founded by a Jewish woman who learned how to get dispensationalist support. In their commitment to keep Israel strong and moving in directions prophesied by the Bible, 
dispensationalists are supporting some of the most dangerous elements in Israeli society. They do so because such political and religious elements seem to conform to dispensationalist beliefs about what is coming next for Israel. By lending their support, both financial and spiritual, to such groups, dispensationalists are helping the future they envision come to pass. Dispensationalists believe that the temple is coming too, and their convictions have led them to support the aims and actions of what most Israelis believe are the most dangerous right-wing elements in their society. Such sentiments do not matter to the believers in Bible prophecy, for whom the outcome of the quarrelsome issue of the Temple Mount has already been determined by God. Since the end of the Six-Day War, then, dispensationalists have increasingly moved from observers to participant observers. They have acted consistently with their convictions about the coming last days in ways that make their prophecies appear to be self-fulfilling. As Paul Boyer has pointed out, dispensationalism has effectively conditioned millions of Americans to be somewhat passive about the future and provided them with lenses through which to understand world events. Thanks to the sometimes changing perspectives of their Bible teachers, dispensationalists are certain that trouble in the Middle East is inevitable, that nations will war against nations, and that the time is coming when millions of people will die as a result of nuclear war, the persecution of Antichrist, or as a result of divine judgment. For the dispensational community, the future is determined. The Bible's prophecies are being fulfilled with amazing accuracy and rapidity. Peace is nowhere prophesied for the Middle East until Jesus comes and brings it himself. The worst thing that the United States, the European Union, Russia, and the United Nations can do is force Israel to give up land for peace that will never materialize this side of the second coming. Anyone who pushes for peace in such a manner is ignoring or defying God's plan for the end of the age. It seems clear that dispensationalism is on a roll, that its followers feel they are riding the wave of history into the shore of God's final plan. As one dispensationalist group's advertisements read, don't just read about prophecy when you can be part of it. Atheist Jew hawks manipulate believers to beat the drums of war. Leo Strauss is the father of the neoconservative movement, including many leaders of the current administration. Indeed, many of the main neocon players, including Paul Wolfowitz, Richard Pearl, all Jews, Stephen Cambone, Elliot Abrams, and Adam Schlusky, were students of Strauss at the University of Chicago, where he taught for many years. The people pushing for war against Iran are the same neocons who pushed for war against Iraq. Well, they should just say Jew here, not neocons. Strauss, born in Germany, believed that a stable political order required an external threat and that if an external threat did not exist, one should be manufactured. Specifically, Strauss thought... A political order can be stable only if it is united by an external threat. Following Machiavelli, he maintained that if no external threats exist, then one has to be manufactured. So, 
Strauss seems to have advocated governments letting terrorizing catastrophes happen on one's own soil to one's own people. Strauss taught that religion should be used as a way to manipulate people to achieve the aims of the leaders, but that the leaders themselves need not believe in religion. As Wikipedia notes, in the late 1990s, Irving Kristol and other Jew writers in neoconservative magazines began touting anti-Darwinist views in support of intelligent design. Since these neoconservatives were largely of secular backgrounds, a few commenters have speculated that this, along with support for religion generally, may have been a cause of a noble lie intended to attract religious supporters. So is it any surprise that the folks who planned war against Iraq and Iran at least 20 years ago were pushing religious disinformation to stir up the evangelical community? I've recently seen a swarm of spam claiming that all Muslims are evil, that they want to take over the world and establish a Muslim caliphate, and that they want to nuke Israel. They misquote Muslims and use false statements to try to stir up religious hatred. They are simply promoting the Straussian playbook, stir up religious sentiment, even if you are personally an atheist, to create and demonize an, quote, enemy, so as to promote war. And that's the end of that piece. So, all right, I'm going to uh, follow that with uh, another piece by my favorite writer, Yukon Jack, Batshit Crazy America. America, now America with a K, is a police state. America is America, gone batshit insane because sane people do not trade liberty and freedom for a police state. Why did this happen? How did this experiment in freedom and liberty end so badly? We know it is caused by Jews, but it is also caused by religion. Jewish religion's gone crazy, and America is full of Jewish offspring religions. Christian denominations that support Israel, Mormons, Baptists, Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses, Pentecostals, Reformed churches, traditional churches, congregations, the list is nearly endless. According to Wikipedia, there are 42,000 different Christian variants inside of the United States. 42,000 different Christian denominations. That will make any nation crazy. America is infected with tens of millions of evangelical Christians, 70 million of these Zionist Christians who are in full support of Israel. The JewTube is broadcasting nonstop the Bible-quoting televangelist, doom, and salvation gospels. American media is 100% non-stop Jewish propaganda, and Christianity is a large part of the problem because the pure bullshit spewing out of the MSM would never be accepted if such a large part of the nation wasn't spellbound by the myth. America is saturated with Jewish propaganda of revelation. Nearly everyone with a Bible is searching for clues about the end times. They believe that God has ordained a final stand of good versus evil. They believe that Jesus will return soon because Israel has been created, a fulfillment of prophecy. 
None realize that they are the cause of the problem, that belief is the fuel setting the Middle East on fire. There is a complete disconnect between the thoughts and actions of America and their experience. Many Christians are anti-science. They oppose rational thinking. Free thinking is a sin against God. The American political landscape reflects this insanity. The presidential candidates fronted to the delusional population are themselves batshit insane, like Michelle Bachman, Sarah Palin, and John McCain, G.W. Bush. America is so far gone into Bible mythology that these Bible cultists are doubling down on their loony geographical timelines of a young earth only 6,000 years old. Creationist centers are popping up all over the nation. Jesus rode the dinosaurs, don't you know? These fundamentalist Christian liberalists are having nothing to do with Darwin and his big idea. Darwin is going straight to hell, according to them. Some think he might be the devil himself testing their faith. Apostate Christians are the driving force behind the Republican Party. The selection of presidential candidates and militant legislation like the war on drugs this coast-to-coast Christian saturation that allowed the Jews to take America unopposed. They can't be anti-Jew and still be Christian. It is this widespread biblical mind infection center that Zionists, traitors, and leadership can play in support of Israel. Why is America so warlike? Why are the people following Jesus so indifferent to the suffering they are causing? Isn't Jesus a pacifist? Jesus is all right with me, but everybody wants to be the domineering winner on the side of God. Everyone wants to be chosen like the Jew. Jesus has been ditched for supremacy ideals. The Bible is Jewish war-making propaganda. It was created by rabbis who wanted the ability to command their people into war. The Bible establishes a higher authority than self in the minds of the sheep. With this external authority installed in the masses, politicians can manipulate the people into war. These humble Christians secretly smirk at those at the receiving end of America's bombing campaigns. Those people don't know Jesus, so to hell with them. These endless wars are caused by these crazy Judeo-religions and governments that use them for grabbing territory, resources, political power. The American empire is a Christian empire. Christian missionary soldiers are on the front lines converting the conquered, making them obedient and docile slaves, making them believers in the supremacy of the Jewish God. In America, the Jews control everything and can pull false flags like 9-11 and completely get away with mass murder because America is possessed by Christianity. Christians can't attack their Jewish masters. They are completely beholden to their master race because they have been physically trumped by the Jews. Thus, Jews can pull 9-11 and the Christian population circles the wagons around their very destroyers and attacks Muslims. Since 9-11, America became America with a K, the land 100% whored to Jewish interests. America fights the wars for Israel. Most Christians are still not aware that Israel pulled 9-11 and when you tell them they don't seem to care, since God runs everything, then America will have deserved it. 
American Christians are so duty-bound to Israel that knowledge of Israeli false flags against their country are shrugged off. The Jews are the destroyers of nations. That is all they do. We know it's because of Jewish parasitic behavior. They always destroy every nation they infest. Jewish history is the timeline of destruction of nation-states. They move in. They take over. They change everything, destroying every value. Then the nation falls. The money is made worthless. The state fights endless unjust wars. Women are exploited as sex objects. Kids are taught homosexuality as an acceptable lifestyle. Where are the false flags staged in America? In Jewish-controlled areas where the Jews can cover up their crimes, where they control the media and the police and the courts. Want to predict the next false flag? Where is the Jew infestation the greatest? How about Los Angeles? Many are asking if the Earth is a prison planet. The Earth is prison planet according to Alex Jones, but then he steers your mind away from the Jewish cause. Alex Jones' operation in Austin, Texas is right in the heartland of the Bible Belt in Zionist-controlled Texas capital. These wild conspiracies of aliens working in secret underground bases keep the mind from seeing the obvious, that there is, on earth, Jewish tribe doing the takeover. The Jews are right there, front and center, on your television, yet you can't see their conspiracy because of biblical belief. Enlightened minds tell us we create what we believe. Those that believe in hell create hell, the sages tell us. What we experience is a reflection of our thoughts. We are creating all of the suffering with our thoughts. Pastor Hagee is a hellmonger. Pastor Hagee and the rest of the gaggle of evangelical nutcases are all in favor of end times, apocalypse now, blood moons, Israeli holocaust. They have a tremendous following. America is full of Christian believers pushing as hard as legally possible for Armageddon. That way, they are proven right. The Bible is true. How do we know? Bible came true because we blew it all to hell. A self-fulfilling prophecy. Helping Jesus come back by ending it all is batshit insane. Take a good look at Earth history. How do you explain the endless stream of revolutions, wars, and the carnage of tortured and dead humans? How many people have died violent deaths in the 20th century alone? As the Jew-controlled state ratchets up the police state, they are building the biggest spy operation in history right in the center of Mormon-controlled area, Salt Lake City. No aliens are taking over. Jews are taking all of our freedoms with the assistance of the Zionist Christians. Mormons have sold their souls to the Jew devils. Many come to the land of opportunity. They came here to make money by swindling each other. They still come here to make money. The greediest of the Mexicans are pouring across the border to get in on the gringo money machine. They weren't happy in Mexico. It was too boring. They want some action up north in America where any criminal can make bank on the land of opportunity. Anyone can engage in some sort of underhanded money-making scheme in Jewlandia. In America, you are free to invent some scam and make truckloads of money. 
then head for the border. Federal oversight agencies don't care what you do. They are busy snorting coke and watching porn while at work. And it's not just Mexicans coming here. Jews and Israelis are coming here like a bag of cockroaches dumped on the hot pavement. They are heading for America because that is where the money is. There are 300,000 Israelis in California alone, many of them hiring Mexicans below minimum wage. People come to America to get in on the money action. Think about it. Take a good look at your neighbors. How many of them are willing to lie as a crisis actor or take a job at uh, Homeland Security? Nearly all of them, and they do it because they want the money. Take a good look at America, this home of the greedy Jewish soul, the home of religious crazies, the military center of the Jew money empire. American workers proudly manufacture drones that kill thousands of innocent people all around the world. Wave the flag and collect a fatty paycheck. Then go to church and be forgiven. That is the American way. America is like a movie about gangsters. Everyone thinks and acts like a criminal on some level. Maybe your neighbor isn't holding up the convenience store, but maybe he's manipulating some derivative or ripping off the entire world. His kid has a good chance to end up on drugs and might end up robbing 7-Elevens and knocking up the welfare sluts who are in ever a greater supply. I've traveled all over America and lived in numerous places. I see the same evil everywhere. It is like everyone is on some kind of drug. Everyone is up to something, got an angle, doing something shady. America is a bad place where bad people do bad things. Take a look around you. Do you identify with your Christian neighbors or the Jewish banker charging interest or the lying politician on the Jew tube? I don't. I feel alienated around most everyone. One big reason are the Jewish holy books, which paint this grim picture of an angry God out to get us, making covenants with his tribe, telling them to kill everything. How is it that the most evil group of people on the planet, the Jews, a tiny minority, rule over the rest of humanity with the rules in their demented books? The question arises, why is this allowed? Why do Jews have power when Judaism should be outlawed? The Jews control the money and are imposing their monetary order on us, a system of usury. With the privately owned banks, the Jews bought their way into controlling all of the western states. This is hell, and the Jews are the demon guard dogs. The Jews are enslaving the planet with their book, a book about their supposed past, we need to stop reading and agreeing with the Jew book and start defending ourselves from the Jew. We need to stop thinking like the Jew predator. That piece. Now I'm going to play a little something here. Give me a second. If you criticize religion, then every so often somebody will say to you quite disapprovingly, you may not have faith in God, but you could show a bit more respect for those people who do. And you might find yourself thinking, well, actually, maybe they're right. It wouldn't hurt to show a bit more respect. After all, nobody likes to be told point blank that their religion is a crock of delusional garbage and a force for evil in the world, that what they call faith is merely fear dressed up as virtue, and that their puerile beliefs are a straitjacket on the whole of humanity. That's bound to put anybody's nose out of joint. 
So yes, maybe I could show a bit more respect. The only fly in the ointment is I don't actually feel any respect. I have tried, I really have, and I feel just terrible about it, but it just isn't there. I suppose I could lie to myself and pretend for the sake of people's feelings, because we all know how delicate and tender they can be these days, but the bald truth is I don't actually care about their feelings at all, not even slightly. And of course I realise that should weigh heavily on my conscience, but luckily my conscience knows when it's being bullied and manipulated, so it doesn't care either. My conscience knows that there is no earthly reason for anybody on this planet to respect religion in any way. Indeed, purely on the evidence religion itself provides in such regular abundance, there's every reason to actively disrespect it to the point of outright abuse. And quite frankly, the fact that religion gets so little abuse compared to what it really deserves, I can only attribute to the unbelievable tolerance, restraint and plain good manners of atheists and secularists everywhere. So if you are a religious person, and if you're thinking of demanding more respect for your beliefs, please try to bear in mind that, that you and your religion are already getting way more respect than you've ever deserved. Your faith is a joke. Your God is a joke. He's so absurd, he's an embarrassment even to people who don't believe in him. And he and you still have it all to prove. So far, no proof has been forthcoming, nor is it likely to be, as we all well know. So respect, I'm afraid, is out of the question. The best you could hope for is amused incredulity, and that would be on a good day. People say, well, you can only truly understand faith when you have faith, which I take to mean when you've suspended your critical faculties and hypnotised yourself into believing a load of fascist nonsense about your eternal soul, then you'll understand faith. Well, I can certainly believe that. Faith peddlers like to put themselves beyond question by claiming that their faith transcends reason, the very thing that calls it to account. How convenient. Yes, faith transcends reason the way a criminal transcends the law. The word transcendent is very popular with religious hustlers because they never have to explain precisely what they mean by it other than some vague superior state of understanding more profound than mere reason which is crude and simplistic next to the subtleties and profundities of belief without evidence. If you hear a senior clergyman, and you will, using the word transcendent to explain the nonsense he claims to believe, then you know two things. One, he doesn't know what he's talking about, and two, he doesn't want you to know what he's talking about either. Faith doesn't transcend reason at all. Faith sidesteps reason. It runs away from reason because reason threatens its cosy bubble of delusion. So faith disqualifies reason the way a Dutch criminal court disqualifies truth and witnesses, and for much the same reason. If you're a believer, your faith allows you to adopt a set of beliefs that are, make absolutely no sense knowing that you won't be measured by whether they make sense, but by the level of piety that you exhibit in believing them. In other words, your willingness to deny reality becomes a measure of your virtue. No wonder religion is so popular. But what a price you pay for this virtue. You've been persuaded that believing in the impossible is your only hope. How did that happen? And that your purpose is to worship something beyond your understanding defined by and only accessible through self-appointed intermediaries. Your thoughts, your words and your identity are no longer solely yours to decide but are subject to the approval of those who have assumed authority over you through your faith.
The people who've told you that you were born with something wrong with you. Come on, in a state of sin, no less. A condition that can only be cured by complete submission and obedience to them. Surprise, surprise, from the moment you're born to the moment you die. And if all this doesn't exactly flatter your ego, and why should it? Don't worry, we can give it a special name to make you feel better and persuade you that you've still got some dignity. Let's call it faith. And let's deem it to be the highest and most noble and profound of all all virtues and let's pretend that it comes from within when we all know that nothing about your religion is allowed to come from within because that would give you strength and freedom the two things your religion wants as far away from you as possible faith is the grip that clergy have over you it's the invisible rope around your neck that pulls you along the road they want you to travel for their benefit not yours it's a dead-end word. It's a word of bondage. It's a word that lets you believe what you've been told to believe without feeling that you've been told what to believe, but you have, and you can stop pretending any time you like. It's not a virtue. That's the last thing it is. It's an abdication from reality. It's a dumb act of self-hypnosis. It's a cowardly cop-out. It's gullibility with a halo, and hiding behind it is like pretending to be an invalid. So I don't really understand exactly what it is that I'm supposed to respect. It seems to me I'd need to be some kind of moral contortionist to respect something that noxious, something that depends for its existence on a closed mind, and it is clearly dragging humanity in the wrong direction, giving us false ideas about ourselves and about the nature of reality. I feel if I respected that, I'd be needlessly contributing to the stupidity and ignorance of the human race. And that is one thing that I don't want on my conscience. No offense. Peace. A little side note. Of course, there is no such thing as a human race. However, there is a human species. And like all species on the planet, plants and animals, it is divided into competing subspecies. For us, we call them races or breeds. And some of those that are considered to be human subspecies are really not even in the same category. At best, you could say subhuman. Back to Urban Jungle Girl. All right. So what I wanted to do now was to read Chapter 17 in uh, Nature's Eternal Religion a closer look at the Judeo-Christian hoax. Now, this isn't a long chapter, but it could be long enough, and maybe I can talk faster uh, or read faster, so we'll see how this goes. The last thing the white race needs for its survival is a collection of bad advice. This is, however, exactly what the Christian religion does give to the white man, a multitude of just outright bad and suicidal advice that, if allowed, will most surely destroy those that embrace it. Christianity despises facts. It despises evidence and reasoning. It despises thinking men. It wants believing sheep. It loves gullible fools. Christ is quoted as saying, Unless you become like little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. It wants to reduce everyone to a simple childlike condition where they are easily duped and misled to believe just about anything. It wants to reduce the creative, productive, heroic, and energetic white race down to where they are meek and submissive fools 
easily managed, easily controlled, and easily enslaved. Christianity is a treacherous mental snare. It rapes the minds of otherwise intelligent men. Once it has the majority under its control, it then resorts to force, if necessary, to break and destroy those who will still insist upon thinking for themselves. When that great early scientist Galileo in 1632 brought logical evidence to show that the Earth revolved around the Sun and that the Sun itself was part of a vast interstellar system, it was the Christian Church which immediately was aroused to stop this advance in scientific thinking. In the following year, Galileo was summoned to Rome, where he was examined by the Inquisition, humiliated and forced to kneel before the vast assembly and renounce his findings. This is only one of the thousands of cases where the Christian religion used force and terror to stifle and paralyze the minds of thinking men. Christianity thrives on lies. It has built a whole network of lies, one lay parlayed upon another, one lie designed to seemingly substantiate another in the endless chain until the average person is confused and so overwhelmed by the massiveness of it all that he is psychologically browbeaten into accepting the whole carload of lies as being God's unalterable truth. Here is one of the first and most obvious lies, one that even a child can see through, namely that every word in the Bible was God's unalterable word, being exactly as he had set it down and not a word having been changed. It is obvious that the Bible has been changed continuously and repeatedly, for instance, we have the Vulgate edition of the Bible for the Catholics. We have the King James Version for the Fundamentalist Christians. We have the Revived Standard Version for the more modern Christians. In fact, the Encyclopedia says that the Bible has, over the last 1,000 and some years of its existence, had more than 100,000 changes made in it, but then adds quickly and apologetically that only 5% of these were, quote, significant. It would seem to me that any changes in the unalterable word of God, quote, unquote, would be significant, and 100,000 changes would render it completely different animal, to say the least. But even taking the 5% figure as such, that would still make 5,000 significant changes spread over approximately 1,000 pages of the Bible. That would leave 95 so-called, quote, insignificant, end quote, changes, and five significant changes per page. It doesn't take a great deal of brains to conclude that the Bible has certainly been changed continuously and significantly, and to claim it has been unaltered from the very beginning is only one major lie in the whole chain to follow. The whole network of the Bible itself is shot through with contradictions and inconsistencies of what it says in itself, one part with another. In other words, the Bible is continually contradicting itself and making a liar of itself. Not only that, but the whole story is so illogical and ludicrous that even a teenager, a number of perplexing questions arose in my mind, or as a teenager, one of the first of these was that why, if God was such a kind and loving God, were most of the people that he had made with such tender loving care, were these people, by and large, all going to hell? It is still a good question, basic and fundamental, 
and it is one that no preacher, no matter how much double talk he has given me, has ever successfully answered. When we examine the whole story structure as set forth in the Old Testament, we find something like the following. If we're gullible enough to believe the Jewish script writers who wrote it, in the beginning, everything was void and God was evidently just floating around in his void with nothing to do, nothing to think about, nothing to see. There was no light. After being in suspended animation for billions and billions and billions of years like that, Suddenly, only about 6,000 years ago, he got the idea of creating heaven and earth. It didn't say that he created hell, but evidently he must have created it at the same time. Since that is where most people were destined to go, he must have created an extra large hell comparatively. In any case, on the sixth day, he created man in his own image, blessed him, and put him in the Garden of Eden. We get the impression that it was God's original intention to have man live in the Garden of Eden forever. However, then a curious thing happened. Adam and Eve hadn't been in this garden for more than a day when they were booby-trapped into eating some forbidden fruit. Why the tree was there in the first place, why it was such a crime to eat its fruit, why the Lord put the serpent there to encourage and persuade them into eating the fruit, no one has ever explained to me. In any case, for this, quote, horrible crime of eating the fruit from this particular tree, evidently the Lord's whole place for the human race changed instantly. We were being led to believe by the Jewish script writers. He was angry with Adam and Eve for this little blunder, and no longer was he a forgiving and loving God, but instead, in anger, he drove them out of the Garden of Eden and cursed them to, quote, earned their bread by the sweat of their brow, end quote. From this little insignificant incident, we are told the whole human race is now cursed with the original sin of Adam and Eve. As ludicrous as this story is, a multitude of logical questions arise. Since we are told the Lord knows all, sees all, knows the future as well as the past, and not a hair falls from our head nor a sparrow from the roof without him knowing it, how does it happen that he didn't know long in advance that Adam and Eve were going to do just what they did do and that he was going to drive them out of the Garden of Eden? He must have known this and planned it that way before he even created them or anything else. If he did know all this in advance, and in fact he constructed the whole universe, including the creatures of mankind, God cannot very well escape the responsibility of having planned it that way. After all, mankind was a creation of God himself, who knows all, sees all, everything in the future, forward and backward. If man turned out to be such a dastardly sinner, then we must also assume that God designed him that way and intended him to be that way. As mankind multiplied, so the story continues, he became exceedingly sinful, and God decided that he would drown them all except for one family, namely that of Noah. The uh, kind and loving God, the one we are told loves us all, then set about to drown all these people like a miserable bunch of rats. This, according to one version of the Bible that I have that places dates on everything, occurred in the year 2448 B.C. in a deluge that lasted 40 days and 40 nights. According to the Jewish script writers that wrote this ridiculous story, Noah, being forewarned by the Lord, 
built an ark and took into it every living thing, all of the fish, both of fowl and of cattle and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. When we consider that there are 10 million species of insects alone, not to mention a number of reptiles, birds, animals, and what have you, this story certainly becomes more implausible than the story of Alice in Wonderland. Nor does the fact that there is absolutely no evidence that the whole earth was covered with water in the year 2348 B.C. or thereabouts particularly bother these Jewish script writers, nor all these preachers that go about spouting these claims. Contemporary Egyptian history mentions no such floods. How contradictory all this is with the evidence of nature before us. When we look at the Grand Canyon, for instance, that has been eroding in its channels for many millions of years, when we look at the glaciers that have been around for hundreds of thousands of years, when we look at the involvement of the different species, such as horses, mastodons, or the saber-toothed tiger, or the more recent historical development of man himself that goes back far beyond the 2348 B.C., a person just has to simply take leave of his senses become gullible like a child in order to believe such nonsense. The story then goes on, and soon Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of the Jewish race, appear upon the scene. According to their own stories, these people were all a bunch of moral profligates, as we have read about in the chapters previously. But according to the Jewish scriptwriters, God took a special fancy to this group and made all kinds of lavish, far-reaching, and overly generous promises to them and to their seed. He made a special sweetheart arrangement with them. The Jews, their wit, claim that they have a special covenant with God, that they are the chosen people, and that they have the inside track with the Lord himself. One of their major organizations, the B'nai B'rith, means, quote, sons of the covenant. Again, the question arises, why would the Lord, who is supposed to be so righteous, so just and so wise, make a special sweetheart arrangement with such a group of perfidious cutthroats, scoundrels, whoremongers, pimps and prostitutes, such as Abraham and Sarah. It's a great story for the Jews, but a pretty stupid story for us Gentiles to incorporate into our religion. So far we find that God has made a bad mistake with Adam and Eve and has driven them out of the Garden of Eden. Their seed evidently turned out badly. He tried to correct this second mistake by drowning all except for one family. Evidently, that was a bad choice also because Noah's progeny turned out so badly that the Lord decided something drastic had to be done again, short of drowning them all at the second time. Since mankind was so bad, so wicked, and so sinful, he decided to do something really meaningful. In the second part of the Bible, which is the New Testament, it says that the Holy Ghost descended upon the Virgin Mary and she became pregnant. She conceived God's only begotten Son who was to save mankind from this horrible fate, evidently going to hell. This is indeed a droll and fantastic story. To think that this all-powerful creator who could create the earth and the sun and the Milky Way and the galaxies billions of light years away a universe so vast in which the earth is only a mere speck and man upon it is more like an atom that such a supernatural being would have to stoop to the idea of having intercourse with an earthly creature and a married Jewish woman at that 
all of this so that she could raise up his son only to have him nailed to a cross seems so fantastically far-fetched and idiotic that you sometimes wonder about the sanity of the human race as a whole. In any case, that is the story as set forth by the Jewish scriptwriters of unknown origin and hundreds of millions of people have been gullible enough to swallow it. The whole idea of, quote, he died for our sins, end quote, is in itself not a very reasonable one. It is something as if, for an instance, a bunch of niggers commit a number of murders, thefts, and crimes, and burn down the city of Detroit. And then you took a good, upstanding white citizen, humiliated him, spat upon him, nailed him to the cross, and then drove a spear into his side to make his blood run. And then this was to atone those niggers having committed all those crimes. What kind of justice is that? How would this atone for their crimes? How would that teach those niggers a lesson in any way, shape, or form? The whole story about he died for our sins is about as ridiculous and as idiotic as an example I just quoted. In any case, evidently, 2,000 years later, looking back on it now, we certainly can't say that this strange, humiliating act that the Lord condescended to in order to save mankind has worked out, and evidently we can chalk up another blooper and failure against the workings of God. It seems as though throughout the thread and story of the Bible, our Creator is just blundering from one bad mistake to another, and none of these programs seem to work out the way they should. When we contrast this with the real world and the laws of nature, how completely in conflict this is with what our common sense, our eyes, and our ears tell us. It is completely unthinkable that any of the laws of nature have ever broken down or have ever failed or have ever been in conflict with each other. We know of no case where the laws of gravity were suspended, nor the laws of light, nor the laws of electricity, or the laws of magnetism, nor were any other laws of nature ever in conflict with each other, nor did they fail to work. In fact, nature's laws have been performing flawlessly, immutably, and inexorably from time immemorial, and will undoubtedly continue to do so in all eternity. In any case, if we just use an ounce of common sense and use the intelligence with which nature has so gratuitously endowed us, we can't help but come to the conclusion that Christ's appearance on the earth and being nailed to the cross did not do any great wonders for mankind. An overwhelming contradiction that manifests itself here is that the Jews who wrote the New Testament sold this story to the white people only, and the Jewish race, who are supposedly God's chosen and God's favored, never did believe in Christ. Ask some preacher to explain this idiotic contradiction to you, and he'll give you an hour's worth of double talk. Therefore, another obvious contradiction looms before our eyes, and that is, why would the Jews be God's chosen people? Why would Christ, who is God's Son, be made to die on the cross in order to save mankind, and yet at the same time fail to convince the Jews God's chosen people? The whole thing doesn't make sense. Furthermore, in the first chapter of Matthew, it makes abundantly clear that Christ was a direct descendant from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
through those whoremongering kings of David and Solomon, and right on through to Joseph, Christ's father. Furthermore, it makes it quite clear that Christ was a circumcised Jew in Luke 2.21. It says, quote, When eight days were accomplished for circumcising the child, his name was called Jesus, end quote. We therefore have the New Testament saying that Christ was a Jew, descendant in the long lineage from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. At the same time, we are told, however, that he was called the Son of God. At the same time, God's chosen didn't believe it, a rather contradictory and most ridiculous story, to say the least. So here is the white man saddled with a religion that is in the first part overwhelming about Jews and God's infatuation with that perfidious parasitic race, and in the second part of God's impregnating and fertilizing a Jewish married woman who has a son, supposedly the son of God, but at the same time, he is the son of Joseph, and proudly having his male lineage listed all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then we have the situation where the Jews themselves don't believe the second part of the story, namely the New Testament, by a huge concerted effort that lasted approximately 300 years. They finally convinced the white Roman civilization that this was to be their new religion, and the white man bought it. How silly can you get? Preachers and missionaries will make a big to-do about how Christ gave us everlasting life. We are supposed to be so eternally and forever grateful for this great magnanimous gift. This again is completely contrary to what we see in nature. We know of no species, of no individual that nature has ever given everlasting life anywhere at any time. There just isn't a single shred of evidence to back up any of this nonsense. Most plants live only one season, produce their seed, and die, only to have a new generation come up in the following spring. Most mammals, like deer, rabbits, coyotes, etc., live only a matter of one or two, perhaps six years on average, and die. During their life period, they have produced enough offspring to carry on the species. There is not a shred of evidence that man fares differently. In any case, who said that we would want everlasting life even if we could have the choice, especially if there might be a dismal and torturous hell waiting for us and we can't terminate the period of our torture? Or even if there was such a place as heaven to go to, who says that we are especially fond of playing the harp forever and praising the Lord? It would seem to me that such indulgence could get awfully boring after a relatively short time. Furthermore, with the Bible telling us most of us are going to go to hell anyway, probably about 99%, what is so great about everlasting life? The answer is nothing, of course, and it is a great big Jewish hoax. There just isn't a single shred of evidence to back it up. It is contrary to all observations that we have witnessed in nature, and we can chalk this down, too, as another one of the Jewish network of lies. When it comes to frightening and terrorizing the minds of his victims with the fiendish and hideous characteristics of hell, the details are brutal and vivid. The great loving God who created us all had evidently planned from the beginning to send 99% of us to a confined torture chamber where we could be forever tortured in a blazing fire from which there is no escape. When it comes to heaven, however, the details are completely missing. 
In fact, the description, except for how it's lined with gold and precious stones and all that, are pretty nebulous. Evidently, our main preoccupation will be praising the Lord. I can't think of anything more boring and more ungodlike than to have a huge herd of captive subjects rendering praise day and night to their master. How tyrannical! We are continually told in the Bible that we should be meek and not vain, and that any pride that we might have is sinful. Yet how vain is our supposed creator? Here he is creating a huge herd, a captive audience that will spend the next millions of years doing practically nothing but mouthing praise. If this is a godlike attribute, then it contradicts all the other values that are proscribed in the Bible. On the other hand, it then pictures us as angels playing a harp, perhaps. Frankly, I have never looked forward with any great anticipation toward playing a harp, If there were such a wonderful and joyous pastime, I would have purchased one a long time ago. So what else is there to do in heaven? Do we eat? Do we wear clothes? Do we sleep? Are we solid? Are we a bunch of spirits flirting through the ether? Do we have wings? The only answer is we don't know any of these things. It is all very vague, very hazy, very nebulous. And as to the location of this wonderful heaven that we're supposed to be knocking ourselves out for, just where is it located? Is it a thousand miles above the earth? A million miles below the earth? A hundred million miles away? Is it near the sun? Is it in this galaxy? Is it really anywhere? And again, the answer is vague and nebulous. Jesus is quoted as saying, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall never pass away. We are then to understand that heaven is only temporary. Well, some say there is a second heaven. So, is it also temporary or what? It is all very sketchy, very mysterious, very muddy, and very dubious. It has all come down to us from a hundred hand-downs of second-hand hearsay that has been revised and rewritten and repatched a hundred thousand times, and we're supposed to take it all as gospel truth. It would seem to me that if the difference between doing the right thing and the wrong thing would mean between going to heaven and eternal hellfire, that God would have made it abundantly clear what it is that he wants us to do. If I had a hired man and gave him the alternatives, that by doing the right thing he would be rewarded with a million dollars. But if he does the wrong thing, I would shoot him. Then the least thing I could do would be to make it crystal clear what it is that he must do and what he must not do. Similarly, if what the Bible says has any validity at all, and it does not, then God would certainly not have confused us with a thousand different religions. Mohammedism, Judaism, Mormonism, Confucianism, Christianity, and a host of lesser creeds. He most certainly would not have splintered the Christian religion into a thousand different branches, such as the Catholics, Unitarians, Methodists, Holy Rollers, and what have you, all of which denounce and discredit each other. Even if you wanted to do the right thing, who is on the right track? The Mohammedans? The Jews who don't believe in Christianity? From such a mass of confusion, how could you possibly ever tell? The whole mess of garbage, of course, breaks down miserably. We return to our senses, take a breath of cool, clean air, and go back to the laws of nature which are real, 
which are in harmony, which are eternal. All truth and all knowledge originates from our observations of the laws of nature. What these born-again Christians will try to trap you with is, quote, how do you explain all the universe around you? Somebody had to have made this all. If they are a more sophisticated philosopher, they will phrase it this way, quote, there has to be a first cause, and this first cause is God, end quote. This is a lame assumption and most unwarranted presumption. We have no evidence whatsoever that this presumption has any basis in fact. We don't know, but that the universe has not been there forever and will be there forever in the future. Whereas the scenes of nature are eternally changing, it is nevertheless always the same, and the laws of nature itself have never changed. They are eternal. In fact, as far as time is concerned... We don't even know what the term itself means except as it is related to the movements of the planets or some other moving object. It can be argued just as effectively that the universe has always been here as to say that God has always been here. In answer to the argument that somebody had to create all this, it can just as validly be argued that, well, and then somebody else had to create God in the first place. It is just as reasonable to assume that the universe constantly changing as it is could not suddenly spring into existence out of nothing as that the Creator sprang out of nothing. It makes just as much sense to argue that somebody first had to create God as it does to argue that somebody first had to create the universe. So we are left with the obvious. The answer is simply, we don't know how it all started if ever there was a beginning. The universe, as far as we know, has always been here. About the mystery of God or gods, we have no evidence. We know nothing. And as far as anyone can tell, there are thousands of myths and stories and fairy tales about gods and goddesses, spirits and angels and devils and fairies and ghosts and gremlins. But as far as any evidence is concerned, all we know is that they are only a product of man's fertile imagination. To succumb to the Christian philosophy is to indulge in a cowardly flight from reality to escape to an Alice in Wonderland fantasy world and to destroy reason and common sense. We repeat, Christianity despises fact, evidence, and reasoning. Christianity despises logic. To become a Christian is to succumb to the perversion of one's mind by Jewish mind manipulation. A born-again Christian is a pervert. He has had his instincts warped, his mind unhinged, and his total outlook on life, outlook on sex, and the survival of his kind completely perverted from that which is natural. He becomes a destroyer of his own race. Although the matter of becoming a Christian is a matter of degree and very few people of the white race actually take it seriously, nevertheless, everybody pretty well passively consents to its domination of our outlook and our society. This in itself is a very significant concession and one that has catastrophic effects on the culture, government, and outlook of the white race over the last 2,000 years. And herein lies the white man's dilemma. In politics, in business, in warfare, and in all his other actions, he uses the instincts and common sense with which nature endowed him so richly. He invokes the laws of survival, the laws of nature, 
and those of his own experience. Then he goes to church on Sunday and has his brains re-manipulated to repudiate all his common sense. He goes off into orbit, into an unreal, nebulous world. His brain slips a cog and completely derails from reality. He comes out confused and conscience-stricken, betwixt and between his brain in limbo to again tackle the problems of the world on Monday. He remains torn betwixt and between two incompatible worlds, the world of reality and the unreal world as prescribed by a bunch of Jewish scriptwriters of unknown identity. His mind is paralyzed with fear of hell, that fiery pit, that ghastly confined torture chamber prepared by your kind, loving, merciful, gracious, and Jewish God for 99% of his beloved victims. At this time, we might ask as well, just when did God, in his great wisdom, create hell and the devil? Was it on the first day when he created heaven and earth? Did Christ, one of the Holy Trinity, who always was and undoubtedly must have existed at the time hell was created, did he also participate in designing and the creating of hell? Since God knows all, sees all, both forward and backward, did he not therefore plan sending all these human beings that he was creating into hell sometime in the future so that he could torture them all at will? Looking a little closer at the devil, we are given to understand that this also was an accident, that God really created him as an angel, but that he fell. As a result of this unexplained little accident, we have a serious antagonist on the other side from God, who is vying, it seems, in a game of cat and mouse to corral more of our poor unfortunate pawns onto his side of the fence, and God is able to get on his side of the fence. The way the story is told to us, it would seem that God is desperately trying to save us all for heaven. But the devil is more clever and more devious and more successful in vagling us to hell. It would seem obvious that God is losing and his accident is winning. What a preposterous and droll situation that is. Here we are led to believe that God is infallible, all-knowing, not a hair falls from our head, but what he is in control and in charge, yet in all the major points he seems to have goofed, all to our, the human being's, detriment. First of all, Adam and Eve went wrong on the first day and fell into the booby trap that God had evidently set. Secondly, he had to drown all the millions of offspring that ensued except for one family. Then they all went badly anyway. This droll story then goes on to tell us that he had a son from a married Jewess by the name of Mary and had him nailed to the cross and bled dry because that was supposed to save us miserable sinners from going to hell. But after 2,000 years, that evidently went far wrong also. But in any case, the proposition that here is this all-knowing infallible God who by a quirk of an accident has created a devil instead of an angel. This devil is now a hot competitor of his and, according to the story in the Bible, is going to win the game, crowding human beings into his hell created by God. Can you think of anything more ludicrous? As a famous general once said, anyone that will believe that kind of cock-and-bull story will believe anything. Nevertheless, we find that the Bible has been written and hundreds of millions of members of the white race have succumbed to it There certainly must be some motive 
behind it other than telling silly stories, and there is, the answer becomes fairly obvious when we look at A, who wrote both the Old and New Testaments, and B, who benefited thereby. When we consider that the Old and New Testament were both written by a passel of slimy Jews, then the whole nefarious conspiracy begins to make sense. We have already reviewed the treacherous and conspiratorial nature of the Jewish race over the thousands of years. We have also reviewed their history and how when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, they came back on the Romans, not by force of arms, but by treachery, trickery, conniving, by foisting upon the once proud and powerful Roman Empire, the suicidal Christian religion, they destroyed Rome. We all know that a thousand years of the Dark Ages followed the collapse of Rome, during which the white race wallowed in ignorance, poverty, and superstition. We know that when the white race did finally extricate itself partially from this perversion of the mind during the Renaissance, the Jew was there in his midst, still in control of the white man's finances, his government, and his religion. We know that the Romans who produced the greatest civilization of ancient times and probably of all time 2,000 years ago were dominant without competition in the then-known world. We know that this was one of the fine manifestations of the energetic and productive characteristics of the white race. We are also aware of the fact that this once great, proud race succumbed to the perfidious and treacherous Christian teachings it was never again the same, and that the white race has never been in charge of his destiny. The parasitic Jew has been in charge of the world ever since. The answer is therefore quite obvious that Christianity has, and is today, a powerful tool used by the conniving and conspiratorial Jewish race to overcome, disintegrate, and destroy the great white race. It is being used more flagrantly than ever today to mongrelize and hasten the white man's destruction. In short, the Jew invented Christianity, perpetuated it upon the white race in order that he could turn him into the perfect goyim, his term for cattle. Yes, that was my conclusion, and that is my verdict. It is the only conclusion that makes any sense. The time is long overripe for the white man to have a religion of his own, one that was formulated by the white man and one that was designed for the survival, expansion, and advancement of the white race. It is the overriding purpose of this book to lay the groundwork for such a religion. And that's the end. I got through it. <laughs> I hope I didn't bore you. And, you know, I wasn't going to read this, but I think I am. There's, this is very short, and uh, I hesitated with this for uh, for a bit, but I'm just going to go for it. And uh, we don't advocate violence uh, on this network. I'm just reading an article. So anyway, this is uh, another piece by Yukon Jack. Snipers, here are your assignments. The global war on terror is a Jewish racket. The terror war is a Jewish terror on Gentiles. It is a Jewish war on us. It's time to take on the Jews who authored 9-11, the terrorism industry, the rabbis that preach hate of Goyim, the so-called Jewish holy books, which are war manuals of waging total war. Anyone associated with Jewish supremacy, Jewish lobby, Jewish-sponsored terror must be eliminated from the state and our society. Any person in Congress aligned with Israel or Netanyahu is the enemy and needs 
Any person who goes along with the official version of 9-11 is acting with the real terrorists who did 9-11, the neocons and Israel. Anyone associated with AIPAC and other Jewish lobbies are all enemies of the United States, the Constitution, freedom and liberty. The gross Israelification of America must stop. Any police officer donning any SWAT black tactical uniform is part of the Jewish army of terror and must be dealt with. Any person who takes part in false flags is an open target. Any person who participates in anti-Second Amendment activities like the Sandy Hook hoax need to be dealt with. For instance, Gene Rosen, the paid subversive and enemy of freedom, needs to be dealt with. (laughs) Any pilot or national who takes part in any false flag like the USS Liberty attack must be dealt with. Real men don't allow slime-balled Jews to dance on the graves of America. We are free beings, and anyone that tries to take our freedom is evil. Jews tried to take our freedom, but they failed because we bought guns and trained ourselves as marksmen and learned who really did 9-11. Now we know. Now we purge this nation of the Jew rats. The Jewish terrorists in Israel are led by Netanyahu and the Likud party. Any person associated or profiting by Netanyahu's strategies must be taken out. When this mass murderer of Palestinian women and children comes to Washington, we have a grand opportunity. The terror war is completely contrived. No one is ever over here and out to get us. This is completely fabricated fear by Jews who are taking down the United States. The only real terrorists are the parasites in Israel. Jews are out to get us because they live by exploiting others. Israel is the enemy. Anyone who is pro-Israel is the enemy. Any Christian who loves Israel more than America is the enemy. The enemy is in the gates. The enemy of America, freedom and liberty, our way of life, our constitutional freedoms, is the Jew and his supporters. Do not stand idly by as your nation is taken down and destroyed. Do not allow government agencies who work under Jewish policies take your guns. Take them out first. But now everyone is aware that the Jew is waging war on us. They have declared war on America, so what are you waiting for? It is important to overcome superstition and psychic control. No God is ever going to judge you. The Jews are not special. They are a very evil race. They were not chosen by God. That is the myth promulgated by them as they colonize your heart and mind with their holy books. All who want to participate in the liberation of America from the Jew predators must overcome psychic dominance. The Jews control the television, that is why it's called the Jew Tube, and it broadcasts non-stop Jewish propaganda. Anyone who deals with the evil Jew will be condemned. You must overcome the social conditioning and act with resolve, knowing that your acts are justified. On this President's Day... 2015, I declare war on all Jews involved in the overthrow and subversion of the free people of the United States. On this day, by the power granted in me, my free being, my free mind, I am signing the death warrants of Jewish subversives within the United States. To the patriotic snipers of America, you have your assignments. You may commence taking out the Jewish subversives and underlings in your area. May the shooting commence and liberation of America begin. On, oh, we passed the date, 16 February 2015.
<laughs> so, anyway, that's going to do it. Does anybody want to call me? <laughs> I would take some calls if anyone wanted to call. I haven't talked to people for such a long time. I thought it might be a good idea. Can you hear me? I can hear you. <laughs> All right, there we go. <laughs> How are you? I'm fine. Well, nice to hear from you, Bob. This is Wolf Wall Street. Thank you for calling. So do you have anything to add to my uh, my little presentation tonight? Yeah, I thought it was very good. And, and there with old Yukon Blackjack, you know, <laughs> he's mostly good. Yeah. A lot of times we run into folks like that, like Charlie Giuliani. Oh. And uh, it, it just takes time. More time for some people. Yeah. But he doesn't usually, you know, bring up any racial kinds of things. He just avoids the subject altogether. Mm. Usually, usually, but sometimes he does. So, yeah, I had to had to edit that piece a little bit because it was maybe just a little bit over the top. <laughs> just a little bit. So uh, I tried to tread as lightly as I could with that one. I'm going to do a show, uh, well, at some point, once I get enough uh, pieces for it, on uh, Christian crimes. Hmm. <laughs> that might be fun. News stories, you know. Be a news. Well, there's there's plenty of them out there. So. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so. I'll tell you the one the one that gets me though is every time I think about it, and I've only known about it for what about six months at most, and that's this once saved, always saved oh. by the Southern Baptists. <laughs> Every time I think of it, I can't believe it. Well, that's how they get a free pass. I mean, it's, right. it's crazy people. These crazy, they're crazy. Totally. Well, they they eliminate the chance, though. You see, it used to be that, you know, you wait until your last dying breath and then, you know. But no, they eliminate that. You just start out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you get a pass the whole way through. <laughs> it's just crazy. Yeah. I, I can't wrap my head around how people can wrap their heads around it. So very sad to me. You know, once you become Jew-wise and then you get, uh, you know, racially aware, you know, people at our level, anybody at our level that can buy into this crap just totally amazes me, really. That Leo Strauss, I put in a link a couple times, and I'm going to put it in again. But that was from this guy named Tony Pappert over at the LaRouche people, done about 12 years, actually 13 years ago, right around the time, though, of the, in fact, almost exactly around the time of the second attack on Iraq. Of course, the first one was back in 91. So, uh, yeah, they really went after the neocons. And it's a very succinct, very short, uh, people can read that in like a few minutes. But you'll have to think about a few things, so it might take longer. But it does two things. It shows you uh, the beginnings of the neocons. You know, they're all Jews. And Leo Strauss and his uh, deal, and Alan Bloom, who is probably more important that people don't know that much, and their modus operandi, which is just great. Find it real quick. I'll just read it. It's just a real short paragraph. And, yeah, here it is. Real short. This is four-liner, and this is big type. The case is the same as that of the police infiltrator, who, whenever anything important comes up in a meeting, says, I have to talk to you about it after the meeting. He will never discuss anything of significance in a meeting, but only one-on-one, because he is habitually telling different things to different people. And that's the MO 
of these neocon higher the higher ups, the ones that pass out the doctorate degrees. That's their modus operandi. Right. They that's why they'll get their students that maybe a decade down the line will be at total loggers' heads with each other because they think different ways about a certain subject because they were taught differently to create this kind of controlled dissension. And that's what they do. It's one of their uh, primary methods. So it's pretty good. Uh, I like that quote. I, I heard you read that uh, the other day, and I did read that piece on Strauss that uh, I think you posted that about well a week ago or so. And then he just happened to pop up in this other piece that, that I had set aside here. Like you mentioned, I think, tonight, I think once or twice you mentioned Stratfor. Right, in, and in connection with uh, Alex Jones. Ah, okay. Yeah. yeah. Came into the... oh, oh, yeah, that's your private CIA there. That's right. uh, Birdman, and the guy that runs it is Dr. Friedman, I think is his name. And, uh, yeah, the, these are not good people. Surely. So, Surely. yeah. Well, I think I might uh, defer to Bill, who actually likes me to do shorter shows. <laughs> so I'm, I, I thank you so much for your call, Bob, but I think I'm going to close the show. And, sure enough. Uh, I'll put those links in the chat so folks can see what I sent around great, if they great. want to listen to them. Great. Okay, well, thank all, you, Laura. Okay, Bob. Bye-bye. Rahoa. So, folks, I'm going to end the show and say adieu to you this evening, and thank you for listening, and remember, it's all about the 14 words. We must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. Long live Tay-Sachs and Sickle Cell. Free Matt Hale. Rahoa. Good night.
You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.